0: following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Hello, podcast listeners. This is Pastor Scott Austin. I wanted to give you a content warning for this week's podcast. In recognition of Domestic Violence Awareness Month, we had a guest speaker at Artisan on Sunday who is a survivor of domestic violence. And in her sermon, she does mention her experiences of being abused by a parent and an intimate partner. We did this because we believe that it's important to talk about this issue in church, where so often people are left to process their experiences alone and in silence. But I know this is a sensitive topic, so if you need to press pause and listen later, or skip this message altogether, please feel free to do so. And if you find it helpful... You can read the transcript of this message on our website. Just go to the series page for Fall Ordinary Time, and you'll find a link in the details for the message from October 21st. Thanks for listening, and I hope to talk to you soon. I want to introduce to you this morning's special guest speaker, Once again, in recognition of Domestic Violence Awareness Month, we have invited Ali O'Malley, who is the CEO of Resolve Rochester, a local organization working to address domestic violence, to be with us today and to give a sermon, uh, which includes some uh, biblical content as well as personal testimony, and uh, Ali has uh, generously agreed to be with us, and we're so glad to have you with us. Thanks again, uh, and will you welcome Ali? Good
1: morning. Oh, my. Never had applause in church before. That's exciting. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, it is a pleasure to be here. I'm just going to put this flat so that my water doesn't uh, tumble down on me here. Um, My name is Allie O'Malley, and for 10 years, it's been my distinct privilege to be the CEO of Resolve of Greater Rochester, which is an organization dedicated to preventing violence, specifically against women. But in general, we believe that violence against all people is not okay particularly in the context of family and that's where we focus our work. I was called to this work because of my exposure to it. The first 25 years of my life I was were really defined by domestic violence. I'm one of many who have broken the cycle but it's and it's my hope that my story will help you to understand a bit more about this very complicated issue and how important faith can be for some people to heal and to thrive. Today I will try to help you understand what it is like to actually live with domestic violence, how it feels and how it affects you. Again, this is one person's perspective, so it it can't necessarily be generalized. I will spare you most of the horrible details of what I endured, but what I hope you come away with is a new perspective on the realities of domestic violence, and compassion for those who are now or have ever endured it. Paul's words to the Corinthians beautifully express what Christ-like relationships require. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing of the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above ourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Christ's love, as described in this text, is truly the antithesis of domestic violence. The abusers in my past, both my father and my ex husband, were men struggling to establish their place in the world each had a difficult childhood and were tormented by relationships with their own fathers and they entered adulthood with something to prove this is a common theme among domestic violence perpetrators no matter if they are male or female their need to exert power and control over every aspect of their lives including that of their partner and often their children is typically motivated by fear and a deep sense of inadequacy and shame. Inside, almost every violent and abusive partner is a scared child that has felt the pain of rejection or abuse and is desperate for love and connection. Sometimes perpetrators are struggling with mental illness or addiction, too. But as unfortunate as these realities may be, domestic violence is never, ever justified, not even in scripture, despite popular belief. People who enter relationships with perpetrators do not know what is lurking below the surface. By the time the abusive behavior becomes recognizable, the victim is trapped in a complex web like that of a fly to a spider. One of the most common myths about domestic violence is that once the couple separates, the problem ends. I believe it's this myth that makes people ask, why doesn't he or she just leave? Having grown up in a home with domestic violence, then being coerced into marrying my high school boyfriend at the age of 19, I can tell you that domestic violence is not just a series of incidents. It is impossible to just leave. Yes, a person can temporarily leave or move out, but it takes more than changing an address to end a relationship. Domestic violence defined who I was and how I existed in the world. My life was not mine. Every choice I made was calculated to please them, because when they were okay, I was okay. The needs of my father and my ex-husband really preoccupied my mind. They tore at my heart, and they truly informed my worldview. It is difficult to explain to people who have only known healthy relationships what domestic violence is like. A colleague of mine once described domestic violence perpetrators as terrorists. Not the kind that we hear about in the news that make bombs and target people that they don't know, but the kind that use their hands, their words, and their actions as weapons to terrorize their partner and their children, often under the guise of love. Perpetrators are not constantly abusive and violent either, which is why it can be so confusing when you're in the middle of it. In the moments when the perpetrator is feeling secure, they can be loving and endearing, charismatic and charming. Those moments offer hope that things are getting better. Perpetrators will expose their vulnerability to their partners and in these tender moments, the victim is often pulled in and rewarded for extending empathy and compassion. This mixture of good and bad leaves the victim off balance and causes them to question themselves. It's truly crazy-making. My father was an executive at Kodak, a deacon in our church, a member of the Rotary, and the first one to volunteer his skills in woodworking or videography or in any other way as a volunteer when asked. Our home was meticulously maintained, and he left the house every day in a three-piece suit. Behind this carefully crafted facade was a profoundly wounded man. He did not know how to love without conditions, and his every action was motivated out of a mixture of self-preservation, ambition, and his own interests. Dad would tell anyone willing to listen that family was the single most important thing in his life, and he truly believed it. But his unresolved childhood wounds made him Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. By the time I was six, the facade began to crumble. My mother threatened to leave him, so he raced off and filed divorce against her. They were in court for years, literally. His greatest fear had come true, and in his utter humiliation, he set out to prove that he was the victim. With my mother out of the picture, he became fixated on me. We were so enmeshed that he truly didn't know where he ended, and I began. Through his eyes, my every imperfection was magnified, and more importantly, reflected upon him. I was never good enough. I earned love when I performed well, particularly in public, and made him look good. At 16, I left his home and moved in with my mother. But the damage was already done. It's hard for children to understand divorce, even more so when one parent attempts to poison the children against the other. At the age of seven, my father blamed me for not receiving primary custody of my sister and I. As a teen, he humiliated me publicly and privately, both, in an effort to prove that my failings were not his fault. He held me responsible for his happiness. And because it was impossible for me to make him happy, I learned that I was inadequate, and I believed that I was utterly unlovable. I carried those wounds into my own adulthood, so it's really no surprise that I went from the frying pan into the fire. Both of my parents attended church regularly. In eighth grade, I was confirmed in the Presbyterian Church and baptized in the Baptist Church. With so much instability in my home, I found comfort and strength, even as a child, in my relationship with God. I recall the protective presence of a loving God around me, even as a little girl. As a teen, I was very active in my youth group, And the adults in that setting were truly a lifeline to me. Although through my youth group, I learned about experiencing faith. I came to believe that that quiet voice I would hear in my darkest moments that was so very different from the harsh, critical tone of that regular self-talk was my connection to spirit. While I had support in youth group, I was desperately seeking acceptance and love. I met Tom my first serious boyfriend who would become my husband shortly after moving in with my mother. In spite of the trouble I had at home, I was really a good girl. I did well academically, I navigated pretty well socially, and I was active in theater and music. I also had a job, which is where I met Tom. We were the same age, but we traveled in very, very different social circles. And he was a bad boy, (laughs) being with him was an act of rebellion. He treated me like a queen. Nobody had ever treated me with such kindness and adoration. He was a hothead, and he was very jealous. But he was never angry or hostile with me. Our co-workers thought we were great, and that I really helped him. They said that I had calmed the wild beast, My mother loved him because he doted on me and was so protective. His family life made mine look easy, and our shared struggles were the glue that bound us together. Tom was sure that I was the one and that we would be together forever. I wasn't so sure. And after dating for 18 months, I tried to break up with him on two different occasions. Each time, I found him hanging. I was terrified, and I believed that if I left him, he would die. And I never told anyone. I felt truly trapped. We married when I was 19 and were together for five years. Immediately after our vows, the violence he once directed inward was redirected towards me. To everyone looking in at us, things looked great. We were both gainfully employed. By the time we were 22, we had two cars, and when 23, we bought our first home. From a societal expectation standpoint, we checked all the boxes. In fact, it looked like we were beating the odds. But behind closed doors, like my father before him, I was responsible for his happiness. It was an impossible situation. In public, he was a devoted husband, but in private, he berated me endlessly I couldn't do anything right but at the same time he couldn't live without me well he didn't batter me he was too smart to ever leave a mark on me anyone else could see he raped me repeatedly when he was angry at me or when he came home drunk and other than going to work I wasn't allowed to leave the house without him after we bought our home he came home one day with a shotgun. He claimed it was to protect our property, but the only thing he ever lined up in its sights was me. When I realized that I was pregnant, he was elated, and I was devastated. In private, I prayed to God through my tears, please help me. I had a miscarriage. He was furious, and he blamed me. Knowing that I had asked God for help, I felt really guilty, and I fell into a very deep depression. He let me go to therapy because I was crazy and I needed to get myself together. And I'll never forget the day the counselor looked at me with concern and said, do you know what you're describing is abuse? And I could honestly say that I didn't. In fact, what she called abuse, I called love. On that very day, I began to question everything I had ever known about myself and the way I related to the world around me. But it was painful, and it got worse before it got better. As I struggled to find my own voice in the relationship, the violence and abuse escalated. After a particularly heinous weekend, where I was forcefully held captive in our home and not allowed to sleep for 36 hours, I attempted suicide. Fortunately, he called an ambulance. And shortly thereafter I found the courage to get out of the marriage. It took about 2 years and I left and went back a total of 4 times. I continued in therapy for over a decade and was diagnosed with post traumatic stress and depression. I learned a lot about my th- myself in therapy. The most important was to trust myself and my choices. I also realized that the quiet voice of spirit had never left me, but I stopped listening. When I ended therapy, I thought that I was finally free from the effects of the abuse both in childhood and in my marriage, but that was not to be. When I remarried a few years later to my husband, Jim, he was aware of my history and loved me anyway. We were excited to start a family and got pregnant quickly. But I had four miscarriages. After the fourth, repressed memories of my father using my body for his comfort during their divorce surfaced in nightmares. It was a betrayal like no other. Jim stood by me through it all, and he never wavered. He was and continues to be my rock and my partner. In fact, we celebrated our 20th anniversary last May. Eventually, we had two beautiful children, a son and a daughter. I found myself overwhelmed by the gifts God had given us. A parent's love for their child is like no other. And as the power of that love grew within me, so did the intensity of the anger I felt toward my father. It was terrifying, and it caused me to keep my own beautiful family at arm's length. I didn't feel worthy of them. And I was afraid to accept their love for fear that one day my husband was going to wake up and decide that they all deserved better than me. I returned to my therapist who suggested that it may be time to explore forgiveness. I immediately thought, what? (laughs) You're crazy. How do I forgive the unforgivable? Why should I let him off the hook? He needed to repent for his trespasses. I didn't need to forgive. My anger was justified and righteous. I also realized that I had stopped once again listening to that quiet, gentle voice of spirit because I was mad at God. I was mad at him for allowing this to happen. What kind of God could ever allow this? Eventually, My therapist explained that forgiveness does not make it okay, but would allow me to release the tether that bound me to my father. It took me some time, but eventually I warmed to that possibility. He was already out of my life, but I thought about him endlessly, and I blamed him for everything. Our connection was more than a tether. It was a noose. And every day, it grew tighter and tighter around my neck. As the old, a statement in the Old Testament says, "As parents eat sour grapes, the children's teeth are set on edge." That's clearly described my situation. Desperate for help, I turned to my pastor. Forgiveness was bigger than me, and I knew that I was. It was going to take a miracle. We met several times, and he pointed me to scripture that helped me find peace. For another year, I prayed diligently. I read the Bible every day. And I wrote volumes and volumes in my journal following daily devotions. I even went on a 22 day fast in efforts to try to purge this toxic energy that was flowing through me. I began to understand what Jesus meant about forgiving our enemies. My heart and my mind softened, and I told God that I was finally willing to forgive, but I didn't know how. Then, on Pentecost Sunday in 2008, the answer came to me at church. As our pastor finished the sermon, I picked up my hymnal, and out of nowhere, the words, You were innocent, and so were they were spoken to me. I had no idea where they came from. I looked around, I looked over my shoulder to see who could have possibly said this to me and everybody was just singing enthusiastically. (laughs) I wondered what these strange words meant and why I had heard them. As we left church, I felt the emotions rising and the tears rushed forth like a flood. I was truly awash in grief. Once the last tear fell, I realized that the tether had been washed away. I knew that those words came from spirit and were the path that I needed to forgive. I immediately recognized my wounds, my father's wounds, and my ex-husband's wounds. And beneath that collective woundedness... That we were all perfect children in the eyes of God. Doing the best that we could in the context and limits of this very human experience. That same Old Testament reading continues, Yet the Israelites say the way of the Lord is not just. Are my ways unjust, people of Israel? Is it not your ways that are unjust, in my humanity, there was no possibility of coming to forgiveness. But as God touched me with his grace, the walls around my heart came down. The passage continues, rid yourselves of all the offenses you have committed and get a clean heart and spirit. In the ten years since this experience, by God's grace, I have been set free. I've learned to give and accept love without conditions and the dark cloud of depression no longer hangs over my head. It is only as a result of this grace that I can stand before you today and speak about my experience and lead an organization committed to breaking the cycle of violence for individuals and our community. RESOLVE offers non-residential transitional services to victims and survivors of domestic violence. We have short-term counseling programs, therapeutic groups, as well as community outreach and education. We see the issue of domestic violence as one of health and wellness, not as one of punishment and prosecution and criminal justice. We believe that every victim can grow through their experience and thrive in lives free from abuse. We are 100% privately funded and We rely on the generosity of this community to support our work. We deliver services to an average of 150 people, women, men, and LGBTQ each year. If you'd like to learn more about us, I would encourage you to check out our website. I also left some information at the welcome table. Um, And I want to thank you all for your time and attention. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Allie. What a a powerful and challenging and encouraging message. I'm so grateful to you for being here with us um, today. I want to invite all of you to come and receive the Sacrament of Holy Communion. Our table at Artisan is open to all who are seeking to follow Jesus, himself the wounded healer. Um, So you can come to the table and take a piece of the bread remembering Christ's body, which is broken for you. Dip it in one of the cups, remembering Christ's blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of sins. And you can take that in one piece uh, right here at the table. If you come up through the middle aisles and go out through the outer aisles, that will make the thing flow nicely. Uh, There's a member of our prayer team at the back of the room who'd be happy to pray with you in person right now if you'd like to receive prayer. Uh, And as uh, Shannon and Sean continue to lead us in singing... I encourage you to respond in whatever way the Holy Spirit is speaking to you today. Our table is open. Come if you will. Amen.
1: For more information, visit us at
0: artisanchurch.com.